Welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I am your host today, Paige Niedringhouse, and I am joined by my esteemed panelists, Jack Harrington. Hey there. And TJ Van Toll. Hey, everybody. And our special guest today is Jack Franklin. Welcome, Jack. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for listeners who have been listening for a while, Jack is actually a returning React Roundup guest. But Jack, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself for those who are new to the podcast and what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, sure. So my name is Jack. I've been doing web development and front-endy things for coming on to 10 years or so now. Worked at a bunch of places and most recently I've been working at Google where I work on the Chrome DevTools team. So I can't really avoid front-end development from, from both sides now because obviously I, I do it day to day because a lot of people don't realize Chrome DevTools is a front-end application. It's all HTML, CSS, and well, JavaScript slash TypeScript. So yeah, I spend my days building a tool to debug front-ends and then when I can't <laughs> do that, I then debug my front end using the tool that I'm building to debug front ends. It gets very confusing very quickly. Uh, Yes. It's very meta. Yes. And if you break your own DevTools locally, you can't then debug why because you've broken DevTools. So it's a bit of a challenge. But uh, yeah, I've been doing front end, worked across a bunch of different frameworks, have blogged and written about it for a while. And yeah, just always find it sort of plenty of interesting topics to talk about in the front end world. (laughs) So I think that the article that we recently contacted you about today is one that will be controversial to our listening audience, and it is actually about moving away from React. So maybe you could give us a high-level summary of what you wrote and why you feel this way now. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So if we do link to the blog post, you'll see there's a bunch of caveats in the blog post, which... I I will repeat a little because half of the internet didn't read those and got very upset with me very quickly. (laughs) No. (laughs) I I couldn't believe Shocker. What a surprise. So this really was it was a blog post, very much my opinion of an experience I had. The company I worked at before I joined the DevTools team was a React-based company. I, I spent a lot of time sort of leading React front-end development there and enjoyed working with React and actually felt when I left and I knew that DevTools wasn't React-based that I would miss React and I would find it very tricky to build this sort of big complicated user interface without React and, and that that learning curve would be difficult for me. And really the blog post is just, is talks about how I found it, I found it pleasantly surprising and far less painful than I thought I would. And on reflection, looking back, I think some of the things we're doing in the React world are making things sometimes more complicated. And really, by picking any framework to control your, your rendering, you are putting a sort of layer between you and the browser. Now, regardless of if that's React, Angular, Vue, this could be any particular framework. Like this, Again, a lot of people took this blog post as a real hate on React. Really, it was just <laughs> observing my experience of going from working with an abstraction like React onto getting something closer to the, for want of a better phrase, the platform, which I'm going to use a lot. I don't really love it as a phrase. It's a bit cringy. <laughs> the metal. The metal, yeah. that's even worse. But that's, yeah. it's, it's so not the metal. I mean, the, you yeah. know, the, the browser it's itself has these the crazy level of abstractions of the DOM and everything else. I mean, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. really, the, the post just, we on DevTools today say I now work with custom elements uh, that sort of native ones built into the browser and a little library called lit HTML, which is kind mm. of a little templating thing. It will look very similar to JSX, that sort of approach. And that's all we use. And I really thought I would miss some of the things that React does for you. But it turns out that, to be honest, I haven't at all. And that's not necessarily, that doesn't mean that React is is a bad choice. 
but it means that maybe it wasn't as necessary a choice as I thought it might have been prior to sort of getting more familiar with this world where we have far fewer third-party dependencies and we really write a lot of it in-house ourselves. It's sort of interesting because I feel like we went through a phase in the React world where there was a there was a real push to try to make React and web components or just more platform features work better together. And there was a real push to, to, to try to make that happen. And I feel like we've almost backed off that a little bit. Like we were almost like resigned to our fate <laughs> in a sense that like, like, eh, that's all right. We've, we've been building React apps this way for a while. Um, so it's interesting to hear just a example of somebody that that does give it up and because it's i think for a lot of us react is sort of your almost like your expected baseline it's just how you start building a new project right you don't think too much of it maybe you use something like spelt or or view or something but very few people start a new web app by being like oh well let me just create my index.html and start right just like randomly using some of the web <laughs> some of the web fundamentals yeah, I would agree. I think what I tried to get across in the blog post is, is I think a lot of people, as you say, the baseline or their, their go-to is, is React. And again, here for most of this conversation, for me, you could swap React out with big popular JavaScript framework. Um, yeah, right. And and what I try to get across is, sure, there are, there are projects where that makes sense. It is also unsurprising and, and not a criticism for people to pick a thing that they are familiar with and have worked with because they are likely more productive and will be able to feel more enjoyment out of working with it. I think we've all had the experience of you, you try to use a new technology, whether it's a language framework, whatever it may be, and you end up like you want to learn it, but then you go so much slower because you don't know how it works and, and you sort of bash your head against, against the desk. So I completely understand why people have their sort of like favorites and, and pick pick them over and over again. But what I was trying to get across in the post is that now and then I think it's good to step back and really consider for a given project, is is this still the right choice? And what was interesting as well is is from the sort of the Twitter replies I got around the time, some of them had rude words in, but but some of them were, were interesting <laughs> because they sort of said, oh, well, custom elements can't do this. Or I looked at custom elements five years ago and it wasn't very nice. And I was like, yeah, sure. But th they've really changed a lot and they've come a long way. So I think a lot of people's idea of what they are is not really accurate. I think you can, people would be pleasantly surprised by how much you can achieve if you were to, to pick them up now for a little side project. And I think folks are, well, one of the big deals about web components was not being able to be server-side rendered. And yeah. I think I just saw something around Lit recently where Lit was actually, there's some sort of sauce on top of Lit to like do SSR. So maybe that oh, nice. is not an issue anymore. So you get the Lit. SEO benefits that people are always after with server-side rendering? <laughs> yes, arguably, yes, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think it is coming. I think it's further behind than than things are in the React and, and such world. I think there's also a few proposals to the web specification. You're going to push my knowledge. I think it might be called declarative shadow DOM. Maybe a thing that that is needed to really enable it. And so it is. Yeah, that that is one case. Someone says, well, you can't reliably uh, server side render them now. So yeah, probably you can't, or you can, but you're going to have to accept it's an experimental thing that that Lit is doing. But really, I think this is. The benefit of, of web components is that they're baked into the browser. You don't have to ship any code to your users to enable their, their basic functionality. The, the downside of that, if you want to call it a downside, is, is that they <laughs> are baked into the browser. So people are understandably cautious about adding things 
that are baked in to the language and the the sort of the browser because backwards compatibility is is really important. I think we've seen mm-hmm. what was the controversy? Was it called Smooshgate? Smooshgate or yes. something where where Smooshgate. a new method was added to the ju- <laughs> to JavaScript's API, but it clashed with Moo tools. It was yeah. something mm-hmm. like that. Oh, named it okay. to avoid yes. it. And so backwards compatibility is incredibly important for good reason on the web. That kind of necessitates that things move maybe slightly more slower or with a bit more caution. Whereas if you're working, yeah, if I'm the the React team, we really can do whatever we want to explore server-side rendering because the consequences aren't quite as as high as as building this thing into the browser that ends up being the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So I did look it up. It is declarative shadow DOM. So your memory, your memory is correct. Uh, <laughs> it looks, looks like it's still like sort of an experimental feature, but it is like a actual proposal. So hopefully that'll start moving in the right direction. I did want to ask though, the we should probably back up for a second for people, because I'm sure we have listeners that have never even tried custom elements before, aren't really familiar with what Lit does. Maybe you could start by just explaining people and keeping in mind, we have a React audience. If you if you were building like custom elements, like components, what is that? Maybe not getting into the syntax or stuff, but like, what does that feel like? What does that involve doing? How do you go about starting doing that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. So I would say to people who used React when there were class-based components, pre-functional components, I cannot remember the version number, but I think if you start building a custom element now, you, you will feel like you're slightly back in the class who extends React component sort of syntax, similarly uh, to how we used to have is it component did mount or component will mount, whichever yep. one it is. Mm-hmm. There's in Web Components land, there's connected callback, which is for when the component is connected to the DOM. So put into the DOM. I can't remember the name, but I think it might be disconnected callback, but there is a similar one for that kind of thing. And you can write code that says, that lets you know when particular attributes changed, much like I think React class components had a similar method for that, but the, the names are all escaping me. I think the thing that would be most different is out of the box, you don't have any form of, of JSX type syntax or HTML generation. So that's where utility libraries such as lit HTML can come in. They just make it easier to use like JavaScript template strings to, to output HTML. And of course, by default, React does all its stuff with re-rendering automatically when state changes, use effects and, and that kind of thing. You don't get any of that out of the box. A component, a custom element will not automatically rerun any code at any given point. You have to tell it what to do, when to do it. For some people, that's a downside because you end up writing more code. Very subjective. For me, I actually like that. I like having complete control over when my component does what and sort of managing that directly myself. It does look a little bit more boilerplate though than, say, a React component where a lot of that is abstracted away from you under the the framework. And it looks just like essentially an extension of the the set of tags that we currently have. You know, there's video, there's audio, there's image, there's div, there's all that, right? You you register one of these custom elements and then essentially you look at the HTML and it's just, you know, company dash header or whatever, you <laughs> yeah. know, and that's and that's literally the tag and you can give it custom attributes and there's custom properties and you can talk to it. And then there's this really cool shadow DOM thing that allows it to essentially be like completely self-contained, have its own yeah. CSS and everything. It's really cool. Yeah, that's what's really nice about it is if you use the shadow DOM, any any styles you put into there will never leak out of that shadow DOM. So they can never impact anything else in the page. Uh, so a lot of libraries achieve this. A lot of them will do it by generating like hashes next to the CSS selectors. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the shadow DOM, you don't have any of that build step or anything because it's just you put div 
And only the divs in that shadow DOM are styled by that CSS. Similarly, that will mean that um, native browser events that uh, you dispatch within that component by default are kept within that shadow DOM as well. Although you can configure that so the events bubble out, which is often useful if you want other elements higher up the tree to hear about them. But yeah, once you've defined it, the only rule is the name has to have a dash in it, which is how it's it knows it's not a built-in HTML element. It knows it's one that you've defined. And then you're, you're kind of away. You just you just use them. So if you're using something like lit HTML or some other non-framework type of, of approach, how easy or difficult is it to get some of the benefits that React kind of bakes in, like, you, you know, easy TypeScript integrations or all the code transformations that it will do to bundle stuff up and get it ready for production, the minifying and transpiling and, you know, this, that and the other. Was that a lot of config work that you had to do on your end to to deal with that? No, not really. I would say, again, you're, you're probably asking someone who definitely has some bias here, but, but um, <laughs> it, it it was fairly straightforward. And if anything, compared to the last time I had to fight a sort of big Webpack config, I know the world has moved on and we have other tools now, but that's sort of my lasting memory of, of React. I think it is slightly more straightforward because much more of the code that you've written is just regular old JavaScript or TypeScript that the browser is going to run. You haven't got that sort of extra JSX syntax, for example, that that needs to be converted so the browser can understand it. The only thing you have to do if you're using TypeScript is run something that will just strip out the type information. But other than that, the code that runs in the browser will look almost identical by the types to the code that you you have in your editor. And for me, that's one of the big wins is if you pop open DevTools and you inspect your code, you can see what it is because it looks very similar to your editor. I know we have source maps and you know these are solved problems, but source maps can be fiddly. Uh, they're never always exactly perfect. And so sometimes it's nice to have that one-to-one -one mapping. I think as well, if if people kind of want a sort of gateway into components, I think that lit is a really good little library for, for getting started. That This can get confusing because there's lit and there's lit HTML. Stencil. Yeah, I, I, I'm less familiar with stencil, but we've got lit HTML is purely the templating parts where you put like HTML within uh, template strings and it generates DOM for you. Lit mm -hmm. does a little more. It provides you something that looks a lot like React components, but under the hood, it's all generating web components. So as such, its file size is much smaller because it's leaning on the browser a bit more. I'm curious if, as you spend some time in this ecosystem, I think my my honest biggest concern with sort of diving head into this would be the, the greater ecosystem of sort of help support other frameworks and libraries. So Meaning that if I run into a React problem and I head to Google or Stack Overflow, there's a very good chance I'm going to find somebody to help <laughs> me with my problem, a library that solves my problem. My problem actually might be that I find too much, right? Like I find <laughs> yeah. like conflicting things or, or whatever. And I always worry with some of these other technologies. Like it's one thing if you're doing your own personal thing and then whatever. But if I'm building something for like a company that I want to last for a while... Like looking on Stack Overflow, there's there's very few questions for lit lit HTML right now. Like I'm curious what you what your sense is on the the greater ecosystem of of that. Like, are you able to find help with with questions? Is there starting to become an ecosystem of different tools for people working in this environment? Blog posts. I'm just curious what your what your take is on that. I think there is an ecosystem, but it is smaller than that of something like React because of 
you know, React is more popular and in this current form has been around for much longer comparatively, yeah. if you compare it to Lit. With no data to back me up, anecdotally, it feels like the sort of community is growing over time. You kind of see more people talking about it, more conference talks popping up about components, more companies talking about design systems that they've decided to build using web components rather than React or, or Angular for whatever it may be. Largely because a web component can be dumped into any code base and will work. You, d you know, you don't need to bring in the big framework alongside it. So I think it's moving in the right direction, but it, it is smaller. But then what I would say as well is, at least in my experience, the, the surface area of what um, Lit provides is much smaller than that of React. And, and what that means, I think, is there are fewer chances for you to get, confused is a bad word, but like there are fewer things that maybe need to be Googled. That's not to say that uh, <laughs> yep. it's going to be a completely smooth ride and everything is perfect <laughs> and you'll never have any confusion or questions over it. But, you know, I... Um, I was looking at the React docs the other day and I, I found the page of React hooks and sure, <laughs> bias, but there is a huge list of hooks and there's just a huge amount there and you have to understand the difference between use effect and use layout effect and you have to understand why you would need to use a reference sometimes if you don't want to trigger a re-render. And these are things that sure, mm -hmm. you, you can invest in and, and you can understand them. They are also things that may well cause a bug. Uh, I remember teaching people React and I would teach the use effect infinite loop bug, you know, where you update something that <laughs> triggers the effect and then you crash the browser. And sure, it's, it's a contrived example, that, but I, it happens. I, I've seen it happen in production websites. I've shipped that bug to production myself. <laughs> and I think sometimes uh, with web components, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier, where you control the full life cycle. You're not changing data and that is then triggering your framework to do something on your behalf. With components, you are in full control of that. So I think sometimes you can get yourself into fewer kind of, sort of situations where you are going to, to hit issues because you're maybe slightly holding the framework wrong because you've misunderstood something. So is this something that you use in your day job? Is this is DevTools using web components? Yes. So not all oh, of it because cool. uh, it's, oh. you know, it's a very old, large code base. But we introduced um, web components about two and a half years ago or so. And since then, we're not, there isn't a concerted effort to migrate every piece of, of UI to components. I mean, we'd be doing that for years and we'd never ship any features because we're just migrating. <laughs> but a lot of the newer parts of DevTools are backed with components. So uh, there's the recorder panel, which launched, I can't remember, last 12 months or so, that's entirely web components, as is the Ooh, performance insights panel, which is a new experiment panel. That's all web components. And large parts of um, other parts of DevTools are as well. So yeah, this stuff is being shipped like every day into DevTools, well, every day. We're writing it every day. Uh, the releases aren't <laughs> quite daily. But also, I, I can dig out a link for your show notes, but a, people don't realize a lot of Chrome DevTools is open source. So if people are interested and want to see sort of what this looks like in actuality, you can literally go and look at some of the code. So we can put a couple of links in. Now, there, are, there will be some slight DevTools-specific things in there, which will make it look a little bit different to sort of your average web component. But I think broadly, you can see how the patterns um, start to start to apply. So you said that you, that, or that web components started to get integrated about two and a half years ago. So before that happened, was the team evaluating different potential options instead of web tools, like or sorry, web components? Were they thinking about using any of the frameworks like Vue or Svelte or anything like that? Or was it really kind of vanilla JavaScript or something more along those lines? 
yes, yeah, good question. So, so prior, like when DevTools first came around, what ten plus years ago, way before my time on on the team, there was effectively a, a custom UI layer built in DevTools, which are called widgets, and that's what a lot of DevTools still uses. We did spend some time evaluating different options. I think the tricky thing with DevTools is the way the way we thought about it is, you know, if we rewound ten years and you had to pick the most popular front-end framework 10 years ago to back the future of building DevTools, then today I'd be talking about having to maintain a code base using Knockout.js, jQuery. jQuery <laughs> oh, Knockout! Not yeah! Maybe backbone. maybe Backbone. Uh, yeah. Backbone. No, I'm not sure backbone. Backbone. Don't, don't get too crazy. Backbone. Don't, me, don't hold me to those dates. But as, as an example, and again, that's not to knock any of those tools, uh, you know, Particularly jQuery, I think, gets a very harsh time and it's oh, yeah. still um, incredibly useful. But mm-hmm. now, if, if a developer joined our team now and said, oh, you use Backbone, that would be an issue. That would also, talking about documentation and community, there is no Backbone JS community now, certainly a very small one at, at best. And so really, I think for, for us, avoiding adding dependencies that could become unmaintained or severely out of date is sort of one of the ways we we think about it. And for that, custom elements became a kind of very obvious um, choice. Or to put it another way, to, to pick something other than that, like a React or a Vue, or lots of people think it has to be Angular because of the Google connection. Can we come up with a really compelling reason to add one of those compared to web components and keeping our stack a bit leaner? And the honest answer for us was we couldn't come up with like a really compelling reason to add that extra maintenance burden and literal bundle weight to DevTools and all the rest of it. And it just, it just didn't make sense for us. So just because I, I wanted to, to fact check our timelines here. So jQuery's initial release, 2006. So it is now, it's been now about 17 years old. Wait, wait. Wow. 2006? Really? Initial release. I mean, I, I was not like 2001, honestly. Um, okay. <laughs> Backbone, Backbone 2010. And knockout also 2010. Oh, so, I was in the right oh, so those were the hot frameworks. There you go. So yeah, those are because if their initial releases were 2010, I imagine by like 20, 2012, 2013, they were they were the hot things. So yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. pretty spot on. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So one thing that I I want to hear more about is you talk about using the platform as a React developer, as a Svelte developer, as a person who likes frameworks in general, what are some of the things that I just don't know the platform is even capable of in in today's platform world? Because <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot probably that I just, I know how I used to have to access it. I know what packages I need to pull in from NPM. So what am I missing? What do I need to go and explore more about now? Yeah, I, I think there are sort of two two sort of categories of things we could answer that question. I think the first is things that have been built into the platform for forever that for whatever reason, frameworks typically don't make use of. And the prime example there, I think, is the event system that's baked into the browser. Mm. So you know, when you mm-hmm. when a user clicks on a button, you get an event. But, and I didn't know this until I joined at Google and someone actually showed me, you can make any class be able to dispatch and listen to events by having it extend a built-in class called event target. And now what that gives you is any class, um, and web components extend that as well, by the way, is able to dispatch events. And so this was really surprising to me because I'd come from a React background where the pattern is you pass in a prop called like on food change equals brace this dot on food change. Then when, when mm-hmm. you do at, 
click equals on food change, click that, it fires the prop, which passes it up. But then if that callback function is changing a bunch, you might have to wrap it and use callback or use memo or both or neither or who knows. And you, you have this whole kind of bunch of code that in the browser land, we can just do this dot dispatch event foo. And then in its parent, we can listen for that event that's built in. And that does exactly the same thing. There is far less code attached. And it's more efficient <laughs> because you're not passing down a, a callback function that may change on every render and therefore trigger any form of re-rendering. So I've been like, there, I'm sure there are reasons, right? And as the people who make React, et cetera, are very smart people and there will be reasons. But I've been um, very surprised with how far you can get with, with built-in browser events. And I don't think enough people take advantage of that, which is just baked in this event system, which comes into the browser for you um, for free and is very good and reliable and obviously pretty robust by this point uh, in time. Yeah, we always tend to go straight to NPM. It's like, hey, if I need something, I'm just like, boom, NPM. <laughs> right, and you're like, left yeah. pad. <laughs> right? And, yeah. you know, but there's just so much you can do. Like, I remember I was working with the, the audio API and I mean, I guess I would kind of normally think, oh, wow, I'll just go to, you know, NPM for that. That's not something that would be built in the browser, but it turns out there's this, crazy huge audio API built right into the browser and it's cross-browser and it's fantastic and you don't need anything. It's just it's just there. And because of TypeScript, I mean, honestly, oh my God, there's a libdom TS file that has like every binding for everything that's in the browser. It's enormous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good example of people just don't know what's built in. I, I think there is some form of messaging that needs that the web platform needs to get better at to, to sort of broadcast these changes. I think I tend to see what happens in JavaScript land with proposals to the ECMAScript spec. But but broadly, like I think a lot of people who don't mess around on Twitter for half the day or what's Mastodon now, um, I think it's just very easy to not see what's happening or what is changing. And then in particular, I think you see like Chrome has added support for feature X. It's like, oh, cool. But until it's in everything else, I, I can't use that. But then it goes into everything else, but we just miss that that has happened. And suddenly this whole feature that you'd written off as like Chrome only two years ago is now no longer Chrome only and could be relied on. So <laughs> I, the example I use in the blog post is um, building a form. So I reached for, I think there's a popular React like, was it called Formic? There might be one called Formic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Formic. Again, I'm not going to, this is not to criticize Formic, but that was always how I would build forms. But I decided to just try and build it natively. And HTML validation, let me do sort of basic minimum, maximum length required, ensure it's a number, kind of stuff like that. Sure, it can't do everything. And if you have really complex set of requirements, you're probably going to need to write some code. But I just, I didn't need to. Uh, there's then an API called form data, which again, has been in the browser for a long time now, which you can just give it a form and it will give you effectively an object with all the names of the inputs and the values of those inputs. So you don't need to keep every single one in state and always update the state or anything like that. You can just grab it. And then when you use HTML validation, you you know say it's a required field, the browser will pop up saying you haven't entered a value into this required field, or it has kind of a default message that it shows. Sometimes you want to customize that message or how it looks. I then learned there is also now a constraint validation API. So you do have some ability to customize the validation messages that are shown by the browser to the user. So we can achieve all of that without having to add one library from NPM at all. And like Amazing. sometimes you are going to need yeah. a library from NPM because you have a more complicated set of requirements. So yeah, I'm not, a lot of people took this blog post to mean like never rely on any dependency, <laughs> but that wasn't what I was trying to say. It was trying to say like, 
the barrier to adding a dependency is perhaps could be higher than we maybe think it is at the moment. I think forms are a really good example of that. It's funny, I uh, this conversation is reminding me. So back in 2014, I wrote an article uh, that was several years before yours, but I wrote why web components aren't ready for production yet. <laughs> and uh, I think the same people who reached out to you on Twitter were also talking to me back then because... <laughs> As you can imagine, I heard some opinions based off that. Yeah. But my yeah. my argument at the time was that the, the biggest problem was that polyfilling web components was just awful. And yeah. so I was like, we have to wait until this is like natively yeah. in all the browsers we have to yeah. support. And back then there were more browsers. And I was like, you can't, like if you're shipping production enterprise apps, you can't be using this, right? You can't be toying with this. Just wait a few years. But it's funny because web com- the web world moves kind of slow, right? It's not like the, they appeared in there slowly, but as years go by, it's like, oh, if you're not actively in that world and thinking about it, you're not thinking about, oh, hey, some of these cheap features are shipping and it is mm-hmm. appearing in all these browsers because it's, it's not like you necessarily get notifications of like, oh, that last browser I was waiting for <laughs> has it and, and like I all my users it. are there, right? So like, even I, I like I lose track of like beyond the basics of like when you mentioned declarative shadow dumb, I'd never heard that phrase before <laughs> in my life. Right. So, but it's, and now it's back there, but I'm going to forget about it immediately after this because it's not in any browser. So I can't actually <laughs> use it. So when it becomes usable in 2026 or whatever, like it's going to take I'm me a few years, forgotten. it'll take me a few years to remember that and to actually start using it. So it's, it's just sort of funny how that all works. <laughs> Yeah, the hope is by that point, you will see a conference talk or a blog post or something on yeah. when the time comes. But but it's tricky as well because people, you know, will write when it's in Chrome. I actually have no idea if it's in Chrome, the declarative shadow DOM or not. I, I couldn't tell you which browsers it is or isn't in. But some people now will write blog posts about it because they're excited about it and they want to draw people's attention to it. And that's exciting. But then you see it and you think, oh, it's Chrome only. And that kind of, then the next few times you it, it pops up, you'll be like, oh, but it's probably still Chrome only. So then you've got mm-hmm. this sort of like delayed effect until you think, oh, maybe now I should check it because yeah, it's 2026 and maybe it is now in every browser. And so there's something there in terms of how we can like do a better job of communicating when features go from like experimental to stable, but only in Chrome or only in browser X to, hey, you can actually like properly use this now reliably across all your browsers. Um, I, don't yeah, I ran into this like, same thing with uh, container queries. Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm stoked about container queries. I'm just over the moon about yeah. the potential there. And a lot of folks are like, yeah, this is great, good. And But then about half of the audience was like, 74% can I use is not enough. you know. Okay. And I'm like, but there's a polyfill. It works. And they're like, no, 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 can't do it. I'm like, yeah. are you kidding me? <clears throat> I feel so, like that's that's the story of CSS Houdini too. They've been talking about it for so long. There's so many cool examples of it if you have a browser that supports it, but it's still it still hasn't gotten that first class support everywhere. And until it does, everybody's going to be afraid to use it in production for that very reason. Yeah, I feel like I need a notification system. Here's my next product idea. Like after after a feature has reached like I don't know what what is the minimum barrier now. What's what's our last holdout? Like Ben and iOS Safari for like two, like uh, like two releases, like two yearly releases. I don't know what the barrier is, but some is like this. This feature is now ready for like your enterprise production app. Go nuts! Here's what this feature is. 
that's that's the service probably I need safari. to exist. IE is gone, so probably Safari is the next. Oh yeah, IE is, IE is now just Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you could like poll caniuse.com on a sort of twelve hour basis <laughs> right. or something. That's yeah, just need like a, a can I use subscription? So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We should we should talk to them about that. Yeah, can I can I use Pro? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I pay for that. You know, <laughs> pay for dumber things, please. Yeah. Oh man. Well, is there anything that you think that we haven't touched on, Jack, about React, about using web components, about custom elements, or anything else that you'd give advice on or or want to talk about in regards to this? No, I, I think maybe a good place to finish it off is talking about like the cost of third-party dependencies. And we sort of mentioned earlier that the bar, people's bar to when we use a custom, bring in a, a third-party dependency or not. Because I think that that's yep. a large part of the blog post that I think is is interesting and also isn't specifically about React or any any particular dependency. <laughs> it's just sort of a general general kind of rule of thumb that I've been trying to stick with, which I think is helpful to think about or at least interesting to kind of push some perspectives on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that immediately comes to mind when I think about third-party dependencies is the JavaScript bundle size, because it's always going to bring in more code into your project. And then the second thing that comes to mind, because it seems like it's been happening more and more lately, is that you're opening yourself up to potentially malicious code. Uh, So maybe you Mm. can dive a little bit more into those, into what else we need to consider, really. Yeah, so um, I think I thought about the cost in my blog post. I think I listed three. So bundle size, as you said, I think that's the most obvious and one most people think about. I didn't actually list malicious code, but I, I had one called risk of unmaintained code, which I think we could kind of bucket into the same thing. And then yeah. you've also got breaking changes and upgrades mm. uh, as well as the the, the sort of final ones. So those are the three that I thought about. Jeremy Keefe wrote a good blog post on, on this, and he has, a, I just quote, quote him here, every dependency you add to a project is one more potential single point of failure, which I think is completely true. And again, the, the narrative here isn't so you should never use a third-party dependency. That That's not. But what we're saying here is the there is a, a decent cost to a dependency. And that dependency you're bringing in is going to solve a problem for you. Is, the, is that problem that it's solving worth the cost of you bringing it in? So a good example is on DevTools, I've talked about how we try and minimize dependencies that we have from third parties for this reason. We use a code mirror for all the the syntax highlighting, code editing stuff. That's mm-hmm. in yeah, that is that is a big dependency. I don't know the, mm. the actual size of it on disk, but that's a lot of code. That's a lot of features. And you know, if that were to suddenly go away, that's quite a big job. Or you know, what do we do with that? That that's quite an issue for us. At the same time, directing X people from the DevTools team to build a code editor into DevTools with all those features, all the syntax highlighting whatever else it does, about a million things that we rely on. The amount of time and energy it would take for us to build that ourselves is huge. And so therefore, sure, there is a risk to using CodeMirror. Hypothetically, it could disappear or you know, it becomes unmaintained. And, but that is worth taking because else it would take us years probably to build what it gives us. So therefore, that is a, a worthwhile trade-off. I should be clear as well, I'm very much hypothetically here. I'm not saying that I have any reason to suspect CodeMirror disappears or becomes unmaintained. <laughs> but that's kind of like where we're getting at. And so, but if CodeMirror just did one tiny bit of functionality for us that maybe we could build in a, in a few weeks, 
we might decide that it wasn't worth the risk and we would then build it ourselves. So it's just this constant trade-off that I think people should think about. I think one of the issues we had in the past is that when like NPM and Webpack became prevalent for front-end code, they really hid away the details of what code you're adding to your bundle. Yeah. Like you just did NPM install mm -hmm. foo, require foo, yeah. great. It works. Brilliant. For some projects where you don't care about bundle size, side projects, internal apps, whatever, great. But they they hid those details away and people didn't realize really the impact we were having on the, the final website that, that you were shipping. Another thing we do on DevTools, which could be a whole other episode because that also made the internet very angry. I wrote a blog post about how we, we check our node modules folder into Git. So it's in the Git history. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. So there's another blog post on my site about this. So I'll, I'll sort of steer away from the controversy that, that people found about that. <laughs> the reason we do that is primarily security because it means we don't have to run npm install at any point during the uh, like on our CI bots and, and that kind of thing. But what's really interesting is when you start committing your node modules into Git, you really realize when you've installed something that is very heavy and has a lot of <laughs> files or a lot of code because you literally see it in the diff. Again, People thought that blog post on node modules was telling everyone to commit their node modules to Git. That wasn't the case at all. But there is something interesting about when you start, when you actually add those dependencies to node modules and you then have to commit them into your Git repository, it kind of makes you more aware of, of what you're adding and the amount of code sometimes that you are now committing to, in some ways, maintaining or at least sort of having in your code base. And so I think, you know, if we could rewind. NPM and Webpack did amazing things for the web community and, and you know, that was largely very much positive things. But I think the layer of sort of hiding away what actually happens when you add a dependency to your project made people not think about it as much. It made it like so easy to add that we didn't think about the potential downsides further down the road. Yeah, I added in the, the show notes just on a related topic, uh, a site called Custom Elements Everywhere, which tracks how custom elements are supported in the different big frameworks. And a lot of them do a great job with them, but React in particular is pretty bad, actually, in their, in their custom element support. But it's good to know if you want to use a combo of React and, and custom elements. Well, actually, that leads me to, I think, my, my last question for, uh, for other Jack. <laughs> <laughs> if people, like, if a React developer wanted to start tinkering with this stuff today, what is your recommended path to, like, get going? Should you... Try to integrate some of this into your, your React stuff. Do you, do you think a clean break is good? And then also, like, are there any, like, tutorials or just should you just check out the docs? What, what sort of recommendations do you have there for starting stuff? I think if you want a, a gradual path into it, I think Lit is the best way to go. Uh, now, you don't have, I'm not, you know, there are other frameworks that you can use. I'm more familiar with Lit than, than others, but they have very good tutorials on their website that will teach you a bit about custom elements and teach you what Lit is adding on top of that. Also, I think if you use the, the build tool, is it Vite or Vite? Vite, I think. Vite. I think it's Vite. Vite. It's, it's the uh, French pronunciation. Yeah, French, right? Vite. Yeah, so it's Vite. Mm. Uh, if you yes. use Vite and you, in, you create a new project, they have a template for Lit with TypeScript, I think, oh, baked in. Nice. So if, if you just cool. want to get up and running in that sense, that is probably the easiest way to go. But what's nice, of course, is the, the components that Lit generates are custom elements. So you can then pick them up. You can render them in React. Uh, although React support for custom elements isn't the best always, you can easily have like render a div and use a reference to then hook into that div and dump your Lit element within there. That will work. Uh, you can use Web Components with any other framework. Again, checking the support that that framework has. I think otherwise, if you really wanted to go, okay, what is just in the browser and what do I get for free? Then I think the MDN docs for 
uh, custom elements are probably the best place to start. They're also guaranteed to be up to date as well, because many years ago, there was a custom elements um, experimental spec called the V0 spec. This is very confusing. It was in Chrome for a while. It was never, ever intended to be the spec that made it across all browsers. It was solely experimental. It was always planned to be removed. But I think some of the messaging at the time led people to believe that that was going to be around forever. So there was some frustration there. But anyway, you just have to be a little careful if you are searching for custom elements, sort of info or blog posts that you you find relatively recent blog posts that aren't using this old, now removed and defunct spec. So if you start with MDN, you'll see what the new spec looks like. And that is a good starting point. Excellent. So before we jump into picks, I mean, what are our action items for any listener to be, hey, before you jump into MPM, go check MPM. MDN, you know, to go and see if there are things in the browser that you can just use. Because, I mean, wow, there's a huge platform there. Yeah, I would say so. I think it's at least, very least, it's worth a look at first, even if you then ultimately decide that you need this third-party thing to solve your problem, that's fine. But I think it, it's worth having a look and consider what you what you maybe might not need a dependency for. Yeah, knowledge is power. Yeah, there you go. Well, awesome. Well, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, Jack, what's the best way to reach you? Oh, I was going to say my Twitter name, but I'm not really on Twitter anymore. <laughs> I'm on, uh, what is it? It's, it's indieweb.social slash at Jack F. I, will, I guess <laughs> okay. we can chuck a link in the slow. It's not as easy as saying I'm Jack Franklin on Twitter, is it? But uh, I'm not really <laughs> using Twitter as much anymore. So um, I'll paste a link in so we can put it in the show notes. Perfect. Then we will do that. All right, so let's move into the portion of the show where we talk about picks. And these are, as longtime listeners know, a lot of shows, a lot of kitchen gadgets, and a lot of just other stuff that we think you guys will like. So, Jack, would you like to start us off with a pick for today? Sure. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Here we go. That's a, we were, we <laughs> were waiting amazing. for that. You know? <laughs> yes. It's amazing no, 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 it's no, taken please. this long to have. <laughs> it, it really is. It really is. Uh, Gun, I'll, I'll let. <laughs> I won't be, you know, you can't have the guests go first. So other Jack, please go. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. My pick is a Discord service, only Discord. I mean, there is a website, but there's just just Discord, really, called MidJourney. And what MidJourney does is that you give it any prompt and it gives you an AI image. It gives you actually four of them. You can pick variations, new variations. It is hilarious and awesome and super powerful. And I think uh, you get first 25 images for free, and then you get, after that, you have to subscribe. But it's great. If you want to go and, and play around with Image AI, I think it's, it's just fascinating and, and amazing. Very good, good pick. I know that you shared this either on Twitter or in a, another Discord message, but it is a very cool site. I looked at it, and boy, the, the art that can be generated without people is <laughs> amazing, <Yeah>. truly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. TJ, what do you got for us? So I'm going to pick Baksu, Baksu Snack Box. This is something that uh, Paige and I are both familiar with because it was our holiday gift from Blues. And it is a box that you get in the mail with snacks from Japan, basically. It's uh, It's got, I don't know, what'd you say, like 10, 15 different things in a box. Mm-hmm. It's Some of them are snacky things. Some are more desserty. There's some teas in there. But it's intended to be authentic snacks, uh, but very random snacks is, I think, I think the bigger part of it because Japan is a weird place and they come up with some interesting stuff. So you could, <laughs> it, you could just think of it as just a box of some really random food. And if you're the sort of person that's into experimenting with that sort of stuff, it can be, it can be a lot of fun. So 
I enjoyed the one we got, so I actually ordered another one, which I can see my <laughs> my wife rolling her eyes at me. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's less her thing, but I, I've had a lot of fun with it. Kids have had a lot of fun. That was money um, TJ need to spend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's Boksu, nice. ba- B- or it's B-O-K-K-S-U, Boksu. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I I can second that. It was it was very fun, and I think maybe what part of what they do is they kind of pick a theme. So the theme box that we got was around a particular type of milk that's produced in Japan from you know very happy cows that are raised in great green fields and whatever. But it was it was really fun. It was fun to try all the new stuff. So good one, Jack. Other Jack, would you like to give us your pick? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be really nerdy and recommend a YouTube video on keyboards. So there's a YouTuber I found <laughs> called Ben Ben Valak, who doesn't have he's only got thirty odd thousand subscribers. I'm really I'm really into keyboards, as, as in like typing on not musical. And he did this video on a keyboard where it's only got thirty four keys. Now, if you think there are 26 letters, so that only leaves you eight more keys. If you look down mm-hmm. at your keyboard, if you're using a normal keyboard, there are many more than 34 keys. Anyway, I have since <laughs> yeah. um, got my hands on one of these keyboards and have been trying it out, and it's been a lot of fun. The theory is fewer keys means your hands and fingers move less far. There's less kind of awkward mm-hmm. combos, and it comes with software that you can program all sorts of, of fancy combinations on. I just I think it's I, I'm always interested in improving like the ergonomics and that side of things, and I've been really enjoying playing with it. So it's like a cording keyboard. Is that the idea? Yeah, you can do. So it uses software called QMK, and um, but you can do things like when I tap this button, it's the letter J, but when I hold it, it's the command key. Or you can have tap is J, double tap is something else, hold is something else. <laughs> It's got multiple layers on it. So, you know, on a regular keyboard, if you hit shift, you're effectively in a second layer where all the letters are uppercase. But you can do that. Mm-hmm. And, and then you can have any letters. So, for example, all my punctuation, so like brackets, braces, they're not on the key. I have to hit a second layer to go into that key. So for some people, this sounds horrendous. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to put myself in there. That's horrendous to me. Yeah. And that's, fine. that's fine. It's also <laughs> command. I can't even. Yeah. But okay. Well, I actually have you, you, you do you. That's not for me. But it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's. I've been really enjoying it and have enjoyed it. It's also a really tiny little keyboard. So I tend to, yeah, to like spend time in other offices. So it's nice to be able to have a little keyboard I can just pack away in a small little box and um, take with me. Yeah, that's my pick. <laughs> Nice. That sounds very interesting. I'm going to look forward to seeing that video. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I can type it like uh, one word per minute, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> but it's only got 34 keys. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So my pick for today is going to be a series that I have recently been rewatching to get up to speed for the third season, and it's called Mythic Quest, and it's on Apple TV. Jack is giving me the thumbs. Oh up. yeah, this is good stuff. Yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting look at if you've watched Silicon Valley, it's a little bit like that, but think game video game development studio instead of just tech startup in general. Uh, and Ubisoft is the video game studio that is helping to produce this. So in in each episode, there's cutscenes that they put together, and there's probably all kinds of storylines that are actually informing how this is actually being made, but it's just bonkers. The characters are crazy. The creative director and the lead tech person are always at odds with each other. Executive producers in there try to keep the money flowing and everybody on time and on budget. And it's, it's really funny. 
So if you have an Apple TV subscription or you like to see these kind of sitcoms and you like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, because that's one of, I think that at least two of the writers are also writers for this show, um, mm. then you should definitely give it a watch. It's really enjoyable. And I, I think it's a lot of fun. And I wonder if having never worked in a video game studio, if this is really what it's like. And I have a feeling that it probably is. So. <laughs> it's HR violations Palooza in that place. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. All the time. <laughs> oh, jeez. I have not watched this, yeah. but I love Silicon Valley. And so this will be, yeah, this will be being watched. My, I think for Silicon Valley, didn't they basically talk to loads of prominent startups and got all their disaster stories and they formed a lot of the plots. So I'd be very, I wouldn't be surprised if a very similar thing is happening here. Like you tell us anonymously horror stories and we'll like wind them in. So yeah, yeah. Because yeah. my wife saw some of Silicon Valley and she was like, this is far too far-fetched. I was like, it's not. Oh no, this is, if anything, they're downplaying what you're seeing. If, yeah. if anything, yeah. Yeah, so Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet is what you're looking for on Apple TV. <laughs> I will say season three has gotten a little bit more maudlin. It's, it's, mm. it's definitely not as 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 comic comedy based as it was, but <laughs> it's still good. Nice. All right. Well, Jack Franklin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a no pleasure. Worries. Thanks so much for having me. Good to chat to you all. All right. Well, we will see you all next week on React Roundup. Thanks for listening. See you then. 